There we go. Good stuff. Thanks, Michael. That's right. You know, I, Tuesday night, I love, I love living in Oklahoma because being a Michigan native, we didn't even talk about the kind of weather, like the rain and the, like, maybe snow. We didn't even talk about that sort of thing because it would just tease the people because they would get excited and then disappointed. If it, was, if it was a dusting, which here we would call, like, two inches of snow, th- that's what they would refer to it, you know. And there was, n- there was no – there was – no concept in my childhood that school would be canceled for anything less than five inches of snow that fell between midnight and 5 a.m. If it wasn't at least that amount of snow, you were going to school. And in high school, I loved it when they'd cancel school. You'd get like six, seven inches of snow, they'd cancel school, because then we'd all just go to the mall. So for some reason, we couldn't make it to school, but we would risk life and limb to go to the mall. And now, actually, it is funny, because you do risk life and limb going to the mall now. It's kind of a weird side of things, but uh, hey, let's jump in. We're in uh, Genesis 3, and uh, so if you have a copy of the scriptures, find it. It's really easy to find because it's like right at the beginning, the third chapter of Genesis, first book of the Bible, and uh, we're talking about origins story or the, the beginning of it all, like how we ended up here, and there's oftentimes like some things will like exist for a while, and maybe you know what I'm talking about here. They'll exist for a while, and you don't know how they started, and then fun speculation begins about how it started. So, like, I, so the first church I served, we at, when we did communion, we had the little cups like we have here, and it, we used white grape juice. And so we'd, we'd done this for, for years and years and years, the whole time I served that church. And, uh, and what was fun is people who came in a little bit later, after the church had been well-established, would, would come up with ideas of why we used white grape juice, because most churches use the dark red grape juice. And so they would have, like, different suggestions. And, and other folks that had come in around the same time, they would all band together. And so rumors would circulate around the church, like, well, we do white grape juice because it represents the forgiveness of sin, that you are washed clean. Or the white grape juice represented the purity of Christ in his shed blood. But I had been there long enough, I knew why we used white grape juice. It's because at one point, we were a mobile church. We didn't have property, and we were renting a school auditorium, and the school said, you're welcome to be here. You're welcome to use it, as long as you pay us money and keep the place clean. But if you do communion, you, can, you can't use red grape juice, because if it spills on the seats, that's going to stain things. And so you can use something else, and we were like, well, we'll just use white grape juice. It's just symbolic anyhow. And so we started using white grape juice, and then when we bought or built a building and paid for brand new, nice fabric-covered chairs, we were like, you know, they'd stain those chairs too, and nobody's complaining, and it's just a symbol. And the Bible doesn't say, use red grape juice. It just, you know, it just says this is, you know, the, the symbol of, of all things. And, and so we were using white grape juice, and people thought it meant something, and for us it was just keep the place clean. That's it. And so it is with anything that becomes tradition. You look back and you kind of speculate, why are things the way they are? And when people look at humanity and kind of the really messed up aspects of the world and and how we deal with guilt and all that sort of stuff, boy, we have all kinds of speculation. You ask a cultural anthropologist or you ask a sociologist or a historian or even a scientist, and you'll get all kinds of explanations for why we as people sometimes do things that we know we shouldn't do, and then how we, like, respond after we've done that. But the Bible treats the origin story in sacred terms 
explaining things in such remarkable ways that it's worth revisiting. And so, like I warned you, we're in the third chapter of Genesis, and uh, here we go. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the servant, serpent, You may eat from... So here she's quoting God. You may eat from the trees in the garden, but God said, but God did say, you, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you'll die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and ate it. And he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. And they sewed because they were, well, they were naked up till then. They realized they're naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the cool garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was buck naked. Uh, Buck is uh, an added uh, phrase description for me. Uh, So I hid and he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you put with me, she gave me some fruit here from the tree. Very noble moment. And I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, who, uh, what is it you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. And we approach this, and sometimes even those of us who grew up in the church approach this sort of like a kid's fairy tale, Aesop's fable. We're like talking serpent. I saw that in the Harry Potter movie. It's called Parcel Tongue, I think, or something like that. So sounds nice. And, and you try to wrap your mind around it. And like I said, even good Christian people sometimes go, that's got to be symbolic, right? I mean, the fruit was sex or something else. It wasn't just like an apple. I mean, would you really be tempted by an apple? Not me. You know, cover it in a Snickers bar, maybe. But, you know, you know so there's this thing. And one of my friends, uh, actually a professor of mine in college, he told the story. He said uh, he, he teaches kids Sunday school. He's a PhD in Hebrew and Akkadian and a couple other ancient dead uh, type languages. And uh, John, John shared the story of teaching sixth graders. And he said, uh, I was telling, the, telling this group of boys um, the story. And the story is that um, every time a man left his house, his dog would get into the fridge, grab a ketchup bottle, use his mouth to squeeze the ketchup all over the floor, then lick it up and throw away the bottle. And this man became increasingly frustrated because every time he'd buy a new bottle of ketchup, it would disappear, and he couldn't quite figure it out. And so John would ask the boys, what, is this story real or fiction? And they would go, it's fiction, of course. It's like a children's storybook. You can picture the little beagle, you know, it's the whole deal. And then he pulled out the clip from the local newspaper. And they went, oh, it's real. Like, who would have thought? That's a dog you put on America's Got Talent, right? That's a talented dog, but it was a true story. The dog was doing this, and the way the man found it is one day the dog had left out the ketchup bottle on the floor. didn't quite hit the trash. It's all about the source. If you trust the source, then you trust what the source is telling you. And we talked about this a week ago, that when you read something in the Bible, you always have to ask yourself, 
what was the author's purpose of telling this? Like, was the original author here going, here's a good fairy tale? And when the people read it, when they heard it, did they think, oh, that probably didn't happen that way, but sure is nice. That's a cute one to tell the kids. No. No, in fact, for most of human history, people just passed this one along, people of faith. Hebrew people, Jewish people, and Christian people, they passed it along because they believed it. They trusted this is a real story. And so I think that's important when we're in the early part of the Bible for us to get centered in our minds. That's not in the text. A lot of you guys are like, that's been settled for me since I was a kid. You don't need to convince me. I think it's good for us to just bring it back because our culture approaches stuff like this and rolls their eyes and go, oh, brother, this is silly. But this is our story. This is where it all began. And so as it unfolds, it explains how we got here. And so um, in, your, uh, in your notes there, there's two important realities we're going to explore today. Uh, we're going to spend time on both of these. The first is that we learn from this story, we learn how sin entered the perfect world God created. God created the perfect world, sin shows up, messes it up. As we look at the perfect world, we've got to ask how to get imperfect because I don't live in a perfect world. So how did sin show up? And then the second reality, very important that we're going to see here, we see a familiar pattern of temptation, failure, and response. When we come into contact with something that tempts us, and then we succumb to that temptation, and then what we do after we've succumbed to that temptation, there is a pattern we see in these first two people, Adam and Eve, that surprisingly, maybe not surprisingly, is still with us today. All right, so let's, uh, let's kind of go through that story again, just sort of a little more slowly, making some observations as we go. So it starts out again. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And what's interesting is serpents in the ancient world, whether it was from this story, emerging from this story, if this is an origin story, in other words, wouldn't other cultures share some common features. There's, a, for instance, there is a story in uh, Akkadian language called the Gilgamesh Epic that is a lot like the Noah story. And people have gone, see, that's why the Noah story is made up. Gil- there's a Gilgamesh Epic that's a made-up story too. Well, if, if there was a boat and there was a guy on the boat and there was a huge flood, wouldn't more than one culture remember that? Wouldn't there be at least maybe one other And they would tell it from their perspective, like the Gilgamesh epic. It's very plausible. It would totally make sense. And so, wouldn't it make sense that if the serpent had some ability at this stage of the game to somehow communicate with people, how, I don't know, it doesn't have vocal cords, but wouldn't there be some explanation for why we as people have other stories that view serpents as both clever a little maybe wise, crafty, and evil. Any of you like snakes? Any of you think, oh, they're neat. Any, whenever you see a snake, I think, I'm thankful for snakes because they eat rodents, right? Okay, that's good. They serve a purpose. But when I see a snake, I don't, like, I don't run over to it like I see a puppy. Does, you, there's no temptation to be like, can I pet the snake? I don't, I was out, uh, I was out for a run and uh, neighbors of mine had a beautiful Weimaraner, you know those dogs, they're like gray-brown German dogs, they're like God's perfect dog, he stopped 
after that dog. It's a beautiful dog. And I stopped what I was doing, and I sort of talked to them, but I really was just petting that dog and loving on that dog. You know, if they were out with their pet boa constrictor, I would be like, they need therapy. What is wrong with these people? Why would they own that? That's disgusting. But here's what's interesting. is So scholars point out that there's, there's these other cultures. Like the Romans, for instance, they had a, a symbol, a medical symbol of a staff in one snake. And somewhere, this is kind of a fun fact, somewhere almost 200 years ago in the United States, whoever was coming up with a symbol for doctors, the medical symbol of the staff with two intertwined snakes, got the symbol wrong. That's a symbol for Hermes. That's a symbol for transportation and communication. That is not the Roman symbol for medicine. But because America is the greatest nation on earth, we decided that it is. So it doesn't matter what the Roman Empire thought that symbol was supposed to be. They had one staff, one snake. That was their medical symbol. We're like, hey, we'll take Hermes. That's not what it's about. It is now. That's what we do, right? So we still, we use this symbol, the serpent symbol. We have a love-hate with that thing. We look at it and we're like, man, you see a National Geographic explorer, the snake's, you know, kind of doing its thing. You're like, clever, clever. I don't feel the same way when I see a coyote. I see a coyote slithering about. I'm like, I don't think to myself, that is a very wise animal. Be careful. I hate that thing. I don't have any feeling about a coyote. I don't want to be near it, but I don't have any emotion about it. Anyhow, I don't want to camp out too far on that, but the serpent, when we look at the story, there's a natural tendency to be like a snake talk for real. Well, if this is part of our origin story, wouldn't there be a shared collective, maybe even worldwide attitude about snakes that's a little unpleasant? Could be. I would suggest that there's more to it than just they're creepy. There's a lot of creepy creatures, but most of us really, really hate snakes. If a snake came in here right now, if a snake was there... As manly as we are, we'd be running for the door or up on a table. There'd be a couple of you wackos that would go over near that snake, but the rest of us would be like, I hope you get bit, right? That's how that works. All right, let's move on from the snake because I'm kind of beating a dead snake. So uh, then the next is the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God said you must not eat fruit from the garden that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now here's what's interesting if you just look at what she said and you turn back a couple, just a couple paragraphs, that's not what God said. She's quoting God. I mean, she's doing the air quotation marks here, but she's not directly quoting him. She gets the quote wrong. I mean, he just uttered, you know, there's a tree in the garden and do not eat from the tree in the garden or you will surely die. He never says don't touch it. She adds that. That's a little bonus line. Now, this is not in your notes, but I'd put it in my notes if I were you. This is indicative of something we do. We either create new legalisms, okay? We either create new legalisms, or we downplay consequences. Now, hear me out. Here's what I mean by that. So, she creates a new legalism. He also said, don't touch it. He didn't say, don't touch it. He just said, don't eat it. We add stuff to God's word on the regular. God will say something. And we'll just put a new sheen on it. So have you ever heard, have you ever heard anybody say, money is the root of all evil? Any, uh, that's a quote that gets used. That is a misquote from the Bible. The, the scriptures say, for the love of money. Money's inanimate. Money can't, money's not evil. 
The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not the root of evil. Pride's the root of evil. But the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So you create a new legalism out of it. And what, why do you create the legalism? Usually the legalism is created by people who wish they had more money, right? Uh, I can't believe he spent that on that car. Yeah, well, if he loves money that much. That says something about his faith, you know. You never use that legalism if you have the nice car, but if you don't, it's a, it's a fun one. It feels good. I grew up in the church. I grew up in a church that said you shouldn't dance because that could lead to, you know, sexual desires and all kinds of sexual sin and you know, as a teenage boy, I didn't need to dance to have that problem. That, <laughs> dancing had nothing to do with it. Not at all, right? Uh, I, 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 I graduated from a Bible college in downtown Chicago. And get this, training ministers to be responsible leaders, they had so many restrictions and rules around what we couldn't do. Uh, and I every now and then would talk about this with the dean of students and go, now we're going to like graduate and then go lead a church, but until we get our diploma we're not allowed to see movies. That was a rule. We weren't allowed to see movies. If you saw movies, you'd get in big trouble at the school. And if you got caught, that is. And so I asked, why, why is it against the rule to see movies? They said, well, a Christian should avoid the appearance of evil. And so if you are in a movie theater, you might be there to see a G-rated movie, but you might be there to see an R-rated movie. And the people in the lobby wouldn't know. And so that would be the appearance of evil. If somebody knew you and saw you in the movie theater and you were seeing something that was benign, but they thought you were seeing ra something raunchy, which I would always bring up the fact, how do I know they're not seeing something raunchy? What are they doing in the movie theater lobby? Because that was the kind of person I was at that school. By the way, I did sneak out once and see one movie, just one, never got caught, the movie, Clint Eastwood, Unforgiven. Isn't that good? I mean, that's a good theological title for a movie. Anyhow... I'm confessing that now. But what happens is we, we, there's rules, and then we'll, we'll like set a new low bar around the rules that we can accomplish. Usually, usually the legalisms are built around like what make, what's easy for me. So I'll make a legalism that's easy for me and a hurdle for somebody else. The other, the other thing that Eve does is she downplays a consequence. She doesn't just add a legalism and like don't touch, but she says, um, God said, don't eat it, don't touch it, or you'll or you'll die. And what, this, what, what, what God said is, you will surely die. You, he was, he, there's like a big exclamation point on it, and she put a period instead. And she was downplaying. And we do this too in our culture today. We, we say things like, you know, it's, uh, it, it's you know, God's, God's a God of love. Everybody kind of ends up there in the end. But there's all these parables Jesus himself tells about people who don't quite cut it and they end up in the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That very uncomfortable part. Stuff I wish he hadn't said, but he said it. It's tough. But we'll downplay the consequences for certain behavior. I had a friend, good friend, one of my best friends, and uh, this is, oh gosh, 10, 12 years ago. And he had fallen in love with a girl at work, but the problem was he was married and had children with his wife. And he, he just told me, and he was, it was an unhappy marriage. I'd, I'd been a groomsman in his wedding, and from the get-go, it was an ugly marriage. It was, it was a picture-perfect, troubled marriage. So I didn't blame him for being unhappy. I didn't even blame him for considering ending the marriage. I really didn't, because I understood it was a very tough. They had rushed into things and then regretted it from day one. And it was ugly. 
But I told him, I'm like, dude, deal with one relationship at a time. If this is going to collapse, then, then go through the process and see it through to the end and end it. Do not move on to another woman. And he was like, thank you for your advice. So the next weekend he moved in with the other woman. And I told him, I said, here's what's going to happen. Your daughters are going to side with their mother because that's normal. And they're going to hate you. They're going to see you. And as they get older, they're going to hate you more because the girl also happened to be 20 years younger than him. So uh, I said, they're going to, it's going to be hard for them to relate to stepmom when she's a peer. And uh, I just kind of cautioned him around some stuff. I said, this is how it's going to play out here, 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 here. And he's like, I don't care. And guess what? I wish I wasn't right, but it, it all happened. But in his mind, he had downplayed all the consequences. And it's easy to tell that story because it's about some guy you don't know and it's about somebody else. It's harder to tell those stories on ourselves. But we've all been there. We've all downplayed the consequences for some temptation and gone, it's not going to work out as bad. And then it does, it ends up bad. And so that's what, what Eve does. But then the serpent, the serpent's response, quite clever, because again, he's clever. He says, you will certainly, you will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And, and what the evil one does here, this is incredibly clever. And in English, you, you don't see it. And the scholars, they, they describe what's happening in the original language here. But when God said, hey, if you eat from the fruit, you will surely die. The grammar, the syntax that could be better interpreted You'll be doomed. If you eat this, you'll be doomed. And what the evil one does is he twists the words that are in the chapter 2. And he says, you won't drop over dead immediately. That's what he says in, in, in the twisting of the language. The inference is where God said, if you eat the fruit, it's going to have dire consequences. You will be doomed. And what the evil one says is, you'll drop over dead. You're not going to drop over dead. Take a bite of it and drop over dead. God never said you'd drop over dead immediately. He said that you would have dire, deathly consequences. Two very different things, right? Now, again, that's, um, I wish our English drew that out a little bit better, but that's what's in there, and he misquotes God. And this is exactly what the evil one does. And all the temptation is the evil one, if he gets your ear, he will misquote God. He will whisper partial truths. He won't usually go something completely contrary. He'll say things like, you know, God wants, if God wants me to be full of joy, that means really he wants me to be happy. And this is what will make me happy. I'm unhappy. God wants me to be happy. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Have you ever said that? <laughs> That's not, the Bible never says, never says, God wants you to be happy. Joy, yes, but that's not happy. Happy to us is whatever makes me happy, what puts a smile on my face, basically the fulfillment of whatever I want. That's happiness. That's not joy. That's happy's temporal. Joy's something much deeper, much richer. So the evil one will twist something like that. God will, God loves you as you are. That's true. There is not a person on the planet earth that God doesn't love, that isn't an image bearer for whom Christ died. God loves everybody. Even the people we don't like, God loves those people. But, but, that doesn't mean we're perfect the way we are. 
And every now and then, preachers will even say that. Oh, you're perfect the way you are. No, you're not. Right? We know ourselves. We know we are not. But, but we'll get this message. I'm perfect the way I am, which means I don't have to change. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Marty in a sermon, he was talking about Popeye and uh, how Popeye would always, you know, uh, I can't stand it no more, and then he'd have spinach and all that. My favorite line from the Popeye cartoon, and I know I'm dating myself. A lot of you guys probably didn't see Popeye, but one of the lines Popeye would say is, I am who I am. That's all that I am. I'm Popeye the sailor man, which is why he was pretty much unemployed, wandering the streets, available to defend things, and would never settle down and marry Olive Oil, and she was always available to Brutus because she wasn't his wife because he couldn't quite get his act together because Popeye was who he was. That's all he was. He was Popeye the Sailor Man. And a lot of guys take that approach, like, or I am who I am. That's all that I am. That's, I can't change, and we can, and God wants to transform us. But the evil one will whisper, you don't need to change. They just need to accept you for who you are. And that's one of the huge, huge lies of our culture. Now, we've got to ask a question, what, why is the tree there? And what's the tree all about? And I'm just going to send a blip on this. The tree is not a magic tree. It appears to be more like a test. So it's not like, um, you know, it, it, presumably, some scholars say presumably over time, maybe they would have had access to the tree. But right now, it's just a test of their obedience. Would they take God at his word and would they do what God told them to do? It wasn't that taking and taking a bite out of the tree, there was some sort of magic in the tree that then transformed them. It was the act of disobedience it was a test. In other words, this isn't a parent putting rat poison in the playpen as an irresponsible parent. This is a, this is a, a loving God who wants people to sh- show and demonstrate their love, their reciprocal love for him by a simple gesture of obedience. Not This isn't hard. This is actually a simple gesture. All right, so let's move. There's a dramatic shift. Then the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom. She took it, ate it. She also gave some to her husband. What's that line? Who was with her? Who was with her? And he ate it. And I, you know, where's Adam all this time? Out gardening, golfing, watching a sunrise or sunset? He is standing next to her. In fact, the, the Hebrew, when the serpent's talking to you, the serpent's using plural. He's talking to both of them. Only Eve replies, but Adam, who's with her? Which really begs a question. What is going through his mind? Because he heard the instructions God gave too. So he says, nothing. Maybe she was a brunette. And he was thinking, if she dies, maybe this time I'll get a blonde. I have, there is no good answer to his lack of response. There isn't. So sometimes people are like, well, a woman, she's easily deceived, but a man is, well, then what's a man? If she was deceived, which she was, what, the, the dude is, I'd rather, I kind of would rather be deceived than whatever is going through his mind right now. Let her take the first bite and drop over dead, and maybe God will make something that looks a little different. I don't know what he's after there, but this, at best, at best, at best, this is neglect. But really what this is, is sin. And Romans, Paul writes this. He says, therefore, this is interesting. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, before Moses gave the Ten Commandments. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam 
to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, as did Adam. Now, here's the weird part. Who's the first person to eat the fruit? Eve, the woman, right. Does she get called out and blamed? No. Now, that's kind of interesting. The fault goes to Adam. So the so then the question is, we assume a lot of times that the first sin was taking a bite of the apple or, or the fruit. We don't know that it's an apple, but some fruit. That's not the, apparently the first sin. The first sin is either Adam's failure to step up, Adam's complicit in the deception. But either way, Eve doesn't get charged, Adam gets charged, and the world spins out of control all thanks to Adam. And so they realize they're nude and they sew uh, like some fig leaves together, kind of getting the Tarzan and Jane, Jane look. Uh, any of you who are frustrated at, you know, if you're married, your wife wearing clothes all the time when she shouldn't be, you know, blame Adam right here. They were, initially they were naked and there was no shame, you know. But anyhow, it gets even worse here. And then uh, it says, uh, the man, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? I mean, it's really funny. They are, they are hiding from God. Did they really think that was a winning strategy? No. I mean, rather than, what's, what's really wild here is rather than deepen their dependence and seek closer fellowship with God after having failed, what they do is a deeper wedge forms between God and people. Now, this is, almost, this is really counterintuitive, but yet this comes back, and we're going to unpack some of these patterns here in just a sec. But, what you see happen is a deeper wedge, a deeper separation occurs between people and God. When we do something wrong, rather than go, God, I disappointed you, I'm, I, I, please, I'm sorry, and, and help me, transform me. Rather than take that approach, usually after some sort of breach where we realize I shouldn't have done that, we kind of give God the cold shoulder treatment. We sort of move away. We assume he's ticked at us, so we sort of go into our room and pout. And that's really what they're doing. They're going in the room in the pout. And, um, but then it says the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And right away, right away we see God seeking his creation. And he, Adam ans- uh, then he answered Adam, that is, I, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And Adam may have been the first to show this pattern of hiding, but he is the first in a very long line of people that when they do something wrong, they hide. But Adam hides, and he acknowledges, I, I, I was ashamed. And he said, who told you? This is God. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you to eat from? Do you think God was curious about that? Do you think God wasn't there as the serpent was tempting? Do you think God was like on a vacation or a cruise and got back and was like, something's amiss here? Do you think God wasn't there when he was like watching them like, Look for fig leaves to sew together. No. And I love, uh, I love uh, Adam's reply. Have you eaten from it? Man said, the woman you put here with me. He doubles down on blame. He blames her and God. That's class. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I'm just a willing participant. I just, you know, I'm just trying to be helpful to her. So she asked me if I'd have some, so I did. One of the, one of the uh, commentators, he says, Adam here becomes devious and defensive. I like that line, de- devious. You don't see it right away. But this is devious. That's a good description. 
He, throw, he tries to throw the woman and God under the bus. Now that's, that's something. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She just says, I, she owns it, you know. I can only imagine the conversation a little later with Adam and Eve walking down the trail. How much, how much hitting you think took place of her? Like, you blamed me in front of God. You ate it. You, just, you said nothing. And I'm at fault. You blame God. And we are so in trouble. Thank you very much. And he was thinking, I wish you were blonde. <laughs> I don't know what he was thinking. Now, this is interesting. Here's a capstone verse on temptation. Then we're going to get into the patterns here. When tempted, no one should say. This is James, half-brother Jesus. Uh, When tempted, no one should say, God's tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So God doesn't do that kind of work. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full full grown, gives birth to death. God doesn't tempt. We see something. We like it. We want it. We convince ourselves we deserve it. We do it, and then it kills us slowly over time. Nice. But there you go. There's the formula of temptation, and what James is doing is he's calling back to the garden. He's calling back to the early. So let's, uh, let's roll through some of the patterns of temptation, failure, and response. So if you're filling in the blanks, the first one is this. Intro into, into all of our lives, temptation comes. There's not one person in this room that doesn't deal with temptation in some way, shape, or form. There's not a spiritual level that you could get to where you're no longer tempted. You can't memorize enough Bible verses. You can't attend enough church services. You can't replace Eminem with gospel music in the car and therefore not be tempted anymore. Every person is going to face temptation. Now, this one here stinks. Temptation is customized to where you live. In other words, the devil knows your zip code. He does. He's, he's been watching the game tapes of your life like uh, those dirty cheats the New England Patriots do of opposing teams, right? He's been watching, and he's looking for opportunities to exploit chinks in the armor. He knows what you're into. If you're into red sports cars, he knows. If you're into blondes or brunettes, he knows. If there's a particular kind of flirty personality you like, he knows. He'll arrange for her to work in your office or near you. He knows. He, he is so aware of your temptations. He is, he is, this should, by the way, this should tick us off. You know, if, if there's an area of temptation that, that you're prone to yield to or you just fight, and then it shows up either on a daily basis, rather than be like, oh, I'm going to try to stay strong, turn that over to anger at the evil one. Let, let yourself go, I can't believe it. That, guy, that thing is such a jerk. Here it is again. I'm not going to do this. Temptation is strengthened by the lies we believe and the lies we tell ourselves. It only gets stronger when we say, I deserve this, I've worked hard, I have needs, I've been really, really good, I'll do more, I'll make up for it. But that's lies. That's lies we believe, that's lies we tell ourselves. And then it gets strengthened by it. Temptation is most fierce in the gray areas, the gray areas of ethics and morality. I mean, the obvious stuff. Yeah, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to steal. But... I might pad that report. I mean, because, you know, just rounding up, you know, I might, I might, I, you know, it's, Bible doesn't say what I should or shouldn't watch on Netflix. I'm a grown man. I'm not going to be, 
too carried away by lots of that nudity or foul language or whatever. I'll be okay with that. I mean, it's, the Bible doesn't say don't, so it's a gray area ethically or morally. So I'll just, I'll just do that. And that, that's where temptation is most fierce. You will always find support to make bad decisions. You'll always find someone who encourages you to fall off the wagon. Adam wasn't there for Eve. He's standing right next to her. He keeps himself silent. You will always find somebody around you that either through their silence is complicit or they might actually encourage bad behavior. Oh, come on. You deserve this. And failure to face temptation often invites company. What happens? As soon as there's a a failure, Eve's like, hey, try some of the fruit. And he's like, well, you didn't drop over dead. I'll try some of the fruit too. But it, it evangelizes. Evangelism is telling someone the good news. It's not telling someone about Christ. It's just sharing the good news. In Christian circles, we say it's talking about Christ. But people evangelize bad decisions all the time. Hey, it's Mardi Gras. Want to come to New Orleans with me? No, I don't want to catch a disease. Thanks. You know? but, we, but we'll always find some, some uh, uh, evangelizing in temptation. Now, here's once we succumb, the natural response to sin is shame. That's a funny one. Once, we, once something happens and we realize we shouldn't have done it, it's not the overwhelming need to confess and repent and seek restoration. We just feel bad and we don't want to feel bad anymore. And that's a, that is a big deal. Then when we fail, we usually try to hide our failure rather than deal with it. Just like Adam and Eve hid in the garden, they cover themselves with fig leaves. Hiding is the natural next thing. It's not to own it. Notice, notice politicians what politicians do? You know, it's obvious sometimes what they do, and they, what do they do? They hide behind this, they shade that. Well, we like to poke at them because it makes us feel better, but really they're just a mirror reflection of so much of ourselves. And when, when we mess up, we don't deal with it. We hide. And then shame almost always gives way to blame. Look at Adam. It was, God, it was your fault. She's flawed. You put her in the garden and then she turns around and she's like, it's a snake. And the snake, as they say, didn't have a leg to stand on. That's it. You'll think on that for a little bit. That's a dad joke right there. Yeah, thank you. And then finally, this is the good news. Restoration starts with God. Restoration starts with God is that truly he's the starting place of it. He comes and seeks them in the garden. He knew. He knew it all went down. He was, he was watching. He saw it. He's omnipresent. He's all-knowing. He knew. Didn't come by surprise to him. He wasn't shocked. He didn't go, oh my gosh, I can't believe. It was brand new and they just wrecked it. He, he didn't fly off the handle. No, he disciplines. We'll get to that later. But, but this is a beautiful picture. God comes to them, draws them out. And he's kind and he's gentle in his interactions. And he's inquisitive. He's trying to give them an opportunity to confess. He's engaging in a dialogue. That's a snapshot of God. And in fact, when we get into next week and get into the kind of the, the outcome and the re- path to restoration, then we're going to really see God in that reaching out and beginning the process of restoration. So as you, um, as, as you uh, turn to your tables, there's a handful of questions. What I've done, guys, is because uh, of the nature of the topic and the nature of our groups, not all of you have been together a long time. Go as deep as you want. But the, you'll see that the questions are intentionally at somewhat of a surface level because this topic is very tender. And what I would encourage, I think there, for every guy who's trying to pursue God with all his heart, he needs to have another man or two in his life where 
he, he shares everything. That what's really going on, the real deep temptations of his life, those guys know it. But it, it, it quite possibly is not the table you're sitting around, and that is okay. But I would encourage you to ask God, think about, maybe you already know the answer to, who is it in your life that knows that stuff about you? Because all of us as men, we've got to have this. A man who doesn't have another man or two in his life, who knows all the dirt on him. There should be a guy in our life that could blackmail us. That's, that's the, but because he's a brother in Christ, he would never do that, okay? But there should be that. And if we don't have that person, we're really vulnerable. We are very vulnerable to the wiles of the evil one. So go to your uh, table discussion, 745. I'll close this in prayer. Enjoy the discussion.